0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up! Ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages! Books, comics, sci fi, TV and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here, your host, Dadryl Leyland. Growing up, one of the constants of the long summer holidays was that there would be some Jerry Anderson on the telly. Jerry Anderson's TV work is now the stuff of legend, an influence on many generations of gogglebox-addicted kids who couldn't tear their eyes away from the spectacle that unfolded before them. But back then, Anderson was a veritable prince without love in his own land. Anderson's work was primarily in the arena of puppetry, not the shoddy puppet work you saw down the pier at Blackpool. No, Anderson's puppet work, or as it came to be known, super marionation, was a brand apart. His puppets strived to be as lifelike as possible, despite the visible strings, and his characters were all well-defined, if a tad squirt-jawed. He surrounded his puppets with sets and SFX so sumptuous that many of Anderson's team went on to hugely successful careers, with David Tomblin working on Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Derek Meddings go on to provide special effects work for Superman and the James Bond films. Despite his many advancements in technology, Anderson was feeling disillusioned. Thunderbirds had been cancelled six episodes into season two, and he wasn't happy both with the puppets or with working with them. Doing another puppet show wasn't on his list of things to do, but Lou Grade, the head of ITC Entertainment, felt a new show could be sold, so Anderson dutifully got to work. His first task was making the puppets more proportional. He felt that, no matter how hard they tried, the heads were still far too big for the bodies. But the miniaturisation of solenoids in 1967 meant that, for the first time, they could be mounted inside the puppet bodies instead of in the heads, allowing Anderson and his teams to make puppet heads that were far more realistic in relation to the body sizes. With these new lightweight puppets, Anderson went on to create what many, myself included, believed to be the crown jewel in the Super Mario catalogue. Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. As a kid, Captain Scarlet was my favourite of the Anderson puppet shows. Oh sure, Thunderbirds was great and Stingray had its moments, but Captain Scarlet was the best. The reason for this is the reason that it was overlooked upon its first airing. Captain Scarlet was dark. The more realistic puppets led Anderson and his team to develop more realistic sets, backdrops and vehicles, which in turn led to more realistic scripts. I say realistic, as realistic as one can get within the framework of invaders from Mars and indestructible men. As usual for shows from childhood, the memories all tend to jumble into one. I recall the warning that accompanied each episode. Captain Scarlet is indestructible. You are not. Remember this. Do not try to imitate him and the stunning comic strip-style end credits that featured Scarlet in a variety of certain death-style scenarios. I do remember the show being screened on Saturday mornings in the 1980s and, unusually, being given a serial-style erring where it was cut into chunks on late-night ITV. Specific episode plots and details elude me, though, until I discovered that the entire series, along with other Anderson shows, was available on archive.com, I was slightly dubious of the legality of this. Archive.com is supposed to be an online archive for out-of-print or public domain works, but given these shows are now 50 years old, perhaps there is some legal loophole. I downloaded them all, eager to give it a rewatch. The format for Captain Scarlet was actually developed by Anderson's then-wife, Sylvia Anderson and was far more progressive than Anderson's other shows, featuring a regular non-Caucasian character and a group of deadly female fighter pilots known as the Angels. As usual for Anderson, the characters were colourful, quite literally in the case of Captain Scarlet, and the hardware impressive. Spectrum, the typical Anderson agency that protects the world from the Mister on threat, works out of cloud base, and every agent in Spectrum is colour-coded. Along with Captain Scarlet, the base is run by Colonel White, and other agents include Captain Blue, Doctor Fawn, etc. The aforementioned Angels pilot the aircraft that shoot down or intercept any invaders into Earth Earthspace, and all have the surname Angel, presumably a pseudonym like the colour coordinated title characters. The Angels were Destiny, Symphony, Rhapsody, Melody and Harmony Angel and, as per this show's more international feel, were French, British, American and Japanese. The show quickly picked up a reputation of not being terribly suitable for kids, which is probably why we kids adored it. Captain Scarlet is a very violent show for the era during its execution and bleak from the get-go. Despite having the usual Anderson tropes of a reasonably utopian Earth and being set in the future, 2068, the Mysterons are ruthless invaders, made even more terrifying for never actually being seen. Earth itself seems to be multicultural and content with a focus on increased technological advancement, but the show never shied away from death, blood and violence. There's a very boy's own feel to the show, but that's simply because the Andersons knew their audience. The first episode of the series, and the one that sets the template, albeit very unusually for the series to follow, is called The Mr. Ons, and we'll do a deep dive into this episode in a moment, after we play the really rather funky Barry Gray theme tune. Hey! Captain Scarlet
1: Scarlet!
0: and developed by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson and directed by Desmond Saunders. Derek Meddings, as I've mentioned, was responsible for the exceptional special effects. From the very beginning, Captain Scarlet is moody. It opens in a darkened alleyway full of shadows, foreboding footsteps and screeching cats. A man in a red uniform stands before us and then he's shot multiple times. He doesn't fall, however, staying resolutely upright before opening fire on his assailant who falls down dead. Ed Bishop, better known as Commander Straker in UFOs, unmistakable voice intones menacingly.
2: The finger is on the trigger. About to unleash a force with terrible powers beyond the comprehension of man. This force we shall know as the Misterons. This man will be our hero, for fate will make him indestructible. His name, Captain Scarlet.
0: After the opening, on-screen captions establish that it's Mars, 2068. Mankind's exploration of space has got as far as the Red Planet, where three astronauts, slash pilots, slash what have you, in an exploration vehicle stumble across an alien city. The aliens prepare to greet us, but the ever-fearful mankind open fire, believing the Martians' attempts at communication are an attack. This careless act causes the mistrans to vow vengeance against the Earth, stating that they will assassinate the world president and follow that up with the extermination of all life on Earth. From these opening minutes of the show, we're setting up the mistrans to be slightly sympathetic. We did attack first, we made no attempt to communicate, and this is pretty much on the head of the Explorers. I don't know that Jerry and Sylvia really thought this through... I mean, on the one hand, it's quite courageous to establish that the Earth is the bad guy right from the get-go, but I presume we aren't meant to spend the rest of the series thinking that we deserve what we get. The Mistrans have learned control of matter transference, and they quickly rebuild the destroyed city in the blink of an eye. And then they kill all three of the explorers. On cloud base, Colonel White orders Lieutenant Green to launch the Angels. The Andersons were really ahead of their time with the design work of these shows, and cloud base is a lovely, if impractical, base, hovering, as its name suggests, in the clouds. The Angels fly aircraft that looks like a futuristic update of the Spitfire crossed with the Interceptors from UFO. Down on the ground, Captains Scarlet and Brown are driving Scarlet's wonderfully weird car, which made another fantastic Anderson dinky toy. Scarlet's car is red, obviously, and has a rather thick body with a fin on the roof which swoops downward into a sharp point at the front where the bonnet is. It actually looks like it could do with being a little bit longer to accommodate its proportions. Nevertheless, every kid in the land wanted a Captain Scarlet car, just as they had wanted all of the Thunderbirds, particularly Thunderbird 2, and just as they would want a Space 1999 Eagle in the future. Again, Anderson was ahead of his time, being at the forefront of the merchandising potential of his shows. Scarlett and Brown are tasked with meeting the world president, and they are to escort him to Spectrum's safe house. The scene has a lot of exposition to it, but Barry Gray's music is proper foreboding. As they talk, the lights change, dimming from the warm naturalistic tones to a cold blue, creating a moody feel, just as Scarlett tells Brown... That he feels like the Mistrons are watching all the time. His instincts are true, and the car's tyres suddenly explode, and both Brown and Scarlet plummet off a cliff. It looks like curtains for our heroes, whose bloodied and battered bodies are seen at the foot of the cliff, but Scarlet's body is dragged away by. Captain Scarlet! Holy shit, what an opening! Death, destruction, car crashes, blood, aliens and cool spaceships. My God, TV shows today could learn a thing or two from this. No wonder people had issues with their kids watching it. There's a real palpable feeling of what the hell is going on? On cloud base, Captain Scarlet delivers his report to Colonel White whilst Captain Brown takes the president to his safe house. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back up, back up a section here. Brown and Scarlet are dead. No, 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 really, what the hell is happening? The Andersons are writing a script ostensibly for a kid's show that doesn't spoon-feed them with the plot. That's what's happening. Fair play to them. Brown tells the world president of all the precautions that Spectrum have put in place for him, then escorts him onto the Spectrum building. The scene is again scored to be eerie and uncomfortable, and we see an Anderson staple. See, the puppets for Captain Scarlet were better than the puppets for Thunderbirds on a technical level, but this realism meant sacrificing weight, and as such, the puppets couldn't move as well as the other earlier puppets. To that end, real people were filmed for inserts when the character had to remove things from their pockets or press buttons. It's a lovely little touch that never fails to bring a smile to the Anderson viewer's face. Anyway, Brown takes the president to his office in the building, where he sits down and starts smoking. No, not the do-you-have-a-light type of smoking. No, no, no. He literally starts smoking on camera, and then he fucking explodes, taking out the building with him. Everyone in that building is dead, dude. Holy shit, what's the body count here? The angels are shocked by the total destruction, but the next scene has the president sitting with Colonel White. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The president just blew up. This entire episode is just such a magnificent mindfuck. No wonder kids of our generation are so delightfully screwed up. Colonel White shows us a video explaining what really happened. As Colonel Brown blew bits of flesh and brain matter all over the president's suite, the president pressed a button and was whisked away through a wall. Given the total destruction of the building, as confirmed by the Angels, I'm not entirely sure where the President actually went, but maybe there was a tube to an underground corridor like in Batman Forever. Given that the President seems doped upon on Xanax all the time, Colonel White has to explain what's happening, and Colonel White is baffled by Brown's defection. He tasks Captain Scarlet with making sure the President is safe at all times. BUT, the audience is yelling, Scarlett's a bad guy! This is some tense shit. Scarlett takes the president aboard the plane and the angels accompany him. However, Brown's body has just been found next to the ruins of Scarlett's car from earlier in the show. It seems to have taken Spectrum an awful long time to find that body and the lack of suspicion regarding a man who walks away from an exploding car seems awfully lackadaisical. But Colonel White does manage to figure out that if Brown was an imposter, then Scarlet may be too. Nothing gets past him. He orders the angels to order Scarlet to just turn around, and when he ignores the order, the angels fire upon him, albeit only with a few warning shots. The president tries to call for help, and Scarlet whacks him in the face, causing blood to stream all over his mouth and chin. Jesus! Scarlet ejects and both men parachute down to London and the angels follow their trail to a car that just conveniently happens to be parked exactly where Scarlet and the President land. We'll be charitable and assume that this was always Scarlet's plan to eject over this exact position. Whilst the landscapes and backgrounds are wonderfully detailed, it's laughable how empty the London roads are. White orders Captain Blue to pursue in an SPV, a Spectrum Pursuit Vehicle, which Spectrum seems to have lying all over the world in odd places on the off chance that they may need them. The SPV was another great dinky toy, but for reasons never adequately explained, the driver has to face backwards and use video monitors to steer. The Angels inform Blue that Scarlet only has two routes available to him, so they blow up a bridge on the M21, which won't piss off any computers at all maybe that's why there are no cars with scarlet forced to the london carview the angels and the spv think they have him scarlet however has a plan the spectrum helicopter is under radio control and he's actually a mister on plot to pick them both up this implies that scarlet was always headed to the carview so the angels destroyed a major route for no reason captain black One of the explorers from the opening is alive and under Mr. On Control. He is working with Scarlet to kill the President. So we have the Angels, the Helicopter, the SPV and Scarlet, which would be enough for any other show, but not this one. No, no, sorry Bob. Captain Blue also has a jetpack. I want a jetpack. The helicopter opens fire, blasting at Blue, who is also under attack from Scarlet, who has the President up an outcropping on the car view. The angels then swoop in for more shooty-shooty, and they destroy the helicopter, but it crashes into the car view that Scarlet and the President are on. This is absolutely fantastic stuff. Blue and Scarlet have to have a face-off then, which Blue wins, shooting Scarlet dead, and Scarlet falls hundreds of feet to his death below. So the star of the show has died twice, both times in quite grisly fashion for 1967 and both times on camera for the joy of all the kids watching at home. Blue manages to pick up the president just as the car view collapses in on itself and he swoops away. Scarlet's dead body is taken to the hospital. However, in the tag, Scarlet is sat there as Colonel White briefs everyone on what happened. Again... What the actual hell is going on? Apparently, Scarlet was resurrected by the Mysterons. However, upon his death, he awoke free of the Mysteron influence. But he's still indestructible. Now, there seems to be many moral implications here, in that the real Captain Scarlet is dead. This Captain Scarlet is a Mysteron duplicate. Although no one, least of all Captain Scarlet himself, seems so bothered about this. I'm also assuming that the series that followed didn't really dwell on this, although it seems to me to be an enormous cave from which to mine stories. The other issue here is also one of logic. Was Captain Scarlet an anomaly? If they kill Captain Black or any of the people the Mysterians make duplicates of, could they be killed and resurrected on the side of Spectrum? Again, I'm not holding my breath for answers to this one. Overall though, this was absolutely fantastic. Sure, it could do with tightening up a bit in places, there are quite a few pauses between speeches that slow the flow of a scene down, but the credit the Andersons are giving to the teen and preteen audience is pretty remarkable. There are also a few plot lines left dangling, like what happened to Scarlett's original body, and why did no one think to check up on Captain Black? But on the whole, I think that they should be given an awful lot of credit for doing something that the kids had to pay attention to. Hell, there were times where I was wondering what the hell was going on most remarkable, though, is how violent this is. The hero of the show spends the entire episode as a bad guy and also dead. There are on-screen beatings and more deaths, explosions and great action sequences. Anderson was second to none in that regard, creating special effects sequences that made other shows weep. Sylvia Anderson, who came up with the concept and the characters, also deserves credit for the diversity present in the cast, with a number of nationalities represented. The script itself is the main problem. Giving both Captain Scarlet and the President a personality would have helped make this a little warmer and made us cur a bit more at the end. As it is, the President is such a wet fish we don't really give a toss if he lives or dies and Scarlet himself is a bit of a cipher. The show follows the traditional Anderson ideas that the world will be one government in the future and that most of Earth will be at peace with the threats coming from outside. But I do want to see more of this world and its setup, which implies good world-building. All told, though, this was so glorious, I watched another episode. Randomly choosing episode 9, Big Ben strikes again. This episode has an armed shipment of bombs being carried by lorry through London. If this seems stupid to you, well, that's because it is. Captain Black is following the shipment and rams it with a car that renders the lorry out of control and careening towards London, a literal ticking bomb. With the police in hot pursuit, the transporter ditches them as it moves to complete radio control, the driver helpless to stop it. The effects work in this sequence is again exemplary as it clips corners, smashes through garage doors and hides in an underground car park. Spectrum finally gets involved.
3: Nothing. After two and a half hours, nothing. A 120-ton transporter doesn't just vanish into thin air. We have every available man working on it, sir. I don't care if it takes every man we've got. That atomic device must be found. What's the score on the radioactivity check,
2: Captain? That's out, I'm afraid, Colonel. The transporter is heavily lined with lead. No detectable
3: radiation can get through. Have you checked on the trigger mechanism? Yes, sir. It's a five-key electrical trigger with built-in safety circuits, timed for a 12-hour detonation. But you need the five keys to set it, and each one is held by a different person. Well, that's something. I want that transporter, or the driver, or both. Found and fast, understood? Yes, sir. Sir, The mistrons intend to destroy London. A high destruction ratio nuclear device vanishes. The conclusion's obvious. Lieutenant Green? Yes, sir? Make this a red alert.
0: With time of the essence, you'd think the Mysterons would just detonate the thing. But they leave the driver, Macy, in the cab of the lorry for a bit and let him listen to some smooth jazz because all that plays on the radio in Anderson shows is Barry Gray. Macy looks around the underground car park and realises that Big Ben is chiming 13 times. What nefariousness is this? Without warning, the bomb starts an automatic countdown and Macy passes out simply because it's a commercial break. Twelve minutes late to his own show, Captain Scarlet finally shows up and finds Macy passed out in the street near the river, presumably the Thames. With Macy's help, Spectrum are able to deduce how long they have until the bomb detonates, but with no idea where it is, other than an underground car park, they analyse all available recordings. But think that Macy is talking out of his arse when he mentions that he counted 13 bongs. Scarlet thinks this is all bollocks, and Macy just miscounted under the strain, But Captain Blue isn't so sure, and he calculates the radius that Big Ben can be heard from and then works out how many underground car parks are in that area. The hero of the show still can't work out what Captain Blue is up to because, despite being indestructible, Captain Scarlet is still pretty thick. They locate the car park and, realising that Scarlet is as bright as the inside of a cave, Colonel White elects to save Captain Blue and sends Scarlet in to defuse the bomb. After all, he's indestructible. With time running out, Scarlet manages to get the bomb to safety, but he's caught in an explosion. That's okay though. Death can't keep Captain Scarlet down. In a tag, Scarlet, Blue and two of the Angels are out on a date, and Blue has to explain to Scarlet how he figured it all out.
1: You get quite a view from
2: up here. It could have looked a lot different. Yes. Say, you never did explain how you pinpointed that car park. I've been waiting. For what? Midnight. Now, Macy was in the car park, which is a few yards down the street from this restaurant. He was sure he heard 13. And this could only happen at a distance of around 1,500 yards from Big Ben. Right. But I still don't see how he heard 13. We're sitting about a mile away from Big Ben. And the chimes we are hearing are taking approximately four and a half seconds to reach us. Right. Well. Macy said he turned on his radio, remember? Yes. All right, let's do the same. You count, Captain Scarlet. All right. That's two. Three. Now, we're hearing the chimes instantaneously over this radio. The radio's here, Big Ben's over there.
0: I think I'm beginning to understand.
2: Good. Now, sound travels at 760 miles per hour. That's seven over the radio, but only six live from Big Ben. But Big Ben is 1,500 yards away, so it's four and a half seconds behind the radio. The radio is one chime ahead. Ten. Now listen. Eleven. Twelve. 13. That last chime came live from Big Ben. 13. I'll make that my lucky number.
0: Despite the snark, this was still a top-notch episode. Some of it was actually pretty tense with the sets and SFX again top-notch. It's also pretty sophisticated stuff for the era, and I can totally see why kids and adults like this show. Tony Barwick, who scripted this episode, fashions a taut, if implausible, script that nevertheless delivers on everything Anderson viewers want. Cool hardware, mild peril, and shit going boom. The next random episode I checked out was Attack on Cloud Base. This one was from much later on in the series, episode 31, whereas the others were all quite early. On a routine patrol, Symphony Angel is attacked by person or persons unknown and forced to eject over some dusty country. Symphony looks amazingly like Civil Shepherd in Moonlighting. Anyway, the heat of the desert is too much for Symphony and she passes out due to heat exhaustion. The Mysterons then inform us in voiceover that they are mustering a full-on attack on Cloud Base. Blue, Scarlet and White, brush off any danger Symphony may be in and have a meeting.
3: Tell nothing from Symphony, Colonel. Thank you, Lieutenant. Don't worry about Symphony. We'll find her. Well, I sent for you both to discuss the Mistron threat against Cloud Base. It had to come, Colonel. This base was an obvious target. I agree, Captain Scarlett. But we must ensure the Mistrons do not succeed. This will be our operational plan. Cloud Base will be sealed from all external contact. Any plane coming within a hundred-mile radius will be warned off. And internal security, Colonel? As of now, all personnel on cloud base are on red alert. We will double the radar watch, and everyone will work round the clock, four hours on, two off. That is all. Yes, sir. S.I.G. Colonel White.
0: White orders the abandonment of the search for Symphony due to the Mister on threat, and this being Captain Scarlet, we get lots of shots of the poor girl dying in the desert. Only Captain Blue seems to give a damn about Symphony, perhaps a clue to them having a relationship as seen at the end of Big Ben Strikes Again when they were both on a date, and he confronts Colonel White about his decision. Foreshadowing The Last Jedi, White says he doesn't have to check any decision he makes with a subordinate, nor does he have to explain that decision, and Blue better get on board or else. Blue comes clean that he and Symphony are an item, but White refuses to budge. The security of Cloud Base is more important than any one soldier, no matter who they might be. There's a nice level of characterization here as we delve into them a little bit more. After waiting around for a few hours, Cloud Base is set to action stations and then this episode goes balls out. Rhapsody Angel is blown out of the sky by a UFO as Colonel White realises that the Mistrons are launching an all-out attack. Confusing Cloud Base with the USS Enterprise, Colonel White still has time to call a meeting though, where he orders Cloud Base moved over a remote area and then he tells Captain Scarlet to get a haircut. No, no, he he really did that. I nearly pissed myself laughing. Lieutenant Green gets all in a panic as four UFOs swoop in for an attack. He seems unable to count past four and even struggles with the concept of numbers. White orders the angels to step down as Scarlet will lead the defence force and Green mocks White's assertion that Scarlet is a brave man. Anyone can be brave when they're indestructible, he retorts. I nearly gagged on my coffee. They actually went there. Scarlet doesn't do terribly well, taking a hit before he even does anything, and he's forced to crash land on Cloud Base as the UFOs move in for further attack. The design of the UFOs is particularly impressive. They're flat, saucer shapes, as was the default position of the time, but they spin, making them appear almost transparent and give off a lovely kaleidoscope of rainbow colours. Their beauty masks their deadly accuracy, though, and as they follow Scarlet's wounded ship down, they launch an explosive attack. Dr. Fawn is killed, as is Captain Scarlet, and Fawn's assistant is revealed to be Captain Black. The attack force has risen to over 25 UFOs that decimate cloud base. The mighty aircraft carrier tilts in mid-air, falling to the floor. It will crash to Earth in two minutes, always assuming the Mistrons will let it get there. White calls to all hands to abandon ship. The Mysterons have won.
3: This is Colonel White to Spectrum Headquarters, London. Cloud base is severely damaged and out of control. We will crash in approximately one minute. I intend to go down with my command. Out.
0: And so ended Captain Scarlet, the finest of the Anderson Supermarionation shows, and very much a precursor to Anderson's first live-action series, UFO. Killing everyone off at the end was very daring, and... Wait... There's a minute or two left, everything is spinning, and suddenly, Scarlet and blue. Fine, Symphony delirious in the desert. Adam.
2: It's all right, Symphony. We'll soon have you back on cloud base.
1: It was a nightmare. A terrible, horrible nightmare.
3: Yes, I know how the sun can play strange tricks. But you're safe now.
1: Yes, but it was so vivid. You were all different somehow. The Colonel even more commanding.
3: Well, I... uh...
1: And you, Captain Magenta, so keen and eager to please. Well, I am. I mean, I try.
2: How was I in your dream, Symphony?
1: You were just... Adam.
3: Sounds to me as if it wasn't so bad.
1: No, it was horrible. You were all killed. Even me? Even you, Captain Scarlet. But then, it was only a dream.
0: It was all a dream? Well, bugger me. Up until that last minute, this was a blinding episode. And there's a part of me that would happily cut the last minute of this episode and release it as the last show of the season, and indeed the series. It would be in keeping with the bleak nature of this show that the Mysterians won, especially being as we caused this war in the first place. Still, for the most part, this was an edge-of-the-seat episode. Death, death, and more death, followed by explosion after explosion, and as a kid, what more could you want? Captain Scarlet was a glorious surprise, and I'm glad I grabbed these off Archive.com. The show had a great premise with a ton of wonderful hardware, and great explosions with oodles of action. Sure, it's a little slow in places, and perhaps taking these episodes and Tightening them up to make them 25 minutes instead of 27 would benefit them immensely. But I can see why kids in 1967 loved this, and why it's fondly remembered today. There's a lot of this show that Anderson would dust off for UFO, and given that UFO is easily Anderson's finest 26 hours, that's no bad thing. Captain Scarlet was rebooted as an all-CG series in 2005, which I've never seen, but internet searching has led me to the conclusion that most people consider it a great and worthy revival. Anderson was heavily involved and the scripts apparently featured all the mayhem of the 60s version, but with added characterization. It sounds very promising and looking around I see it's available on DVD and Blu-ray, so I may have to check those out as well. All told, though, Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons comes highly recommended, especially if you have kids. What can be better than a healthy dose of ultraviolets in their entertainment in their formative years? Captain Maybe We're back. Email time. I like email time. Uh, First email tonight is from Kirk Groenfeld. Hey, Andy. Hello, Kirk. After a good long while of self-imposed exile, I thought I'd drop you a line. I downloaded the recent Palace of Glittering Delight show on Lethal Weapon and tried to listen to it during my midnight commute home. This was the night of the ice skating debut of the Winter Olympics, and as a result, we were late. Anyway... The point is that the level is particularly low in this show, so I had to turn it up all the way, both on my device and on my car stereo, and still had a hard time hearing your voice. I suspect you either mix this as a lower level, or in the upload process there's a track missing, or something like that. Well, we will pause that. First of all, I like getting feedback like this, because I don't know how you listen to this shit. Um, I do try and listen to it in multiple ways when I proof listen to it and make sure there are no mistakes or if I've missed any editing loops or if there's something that's happened in the interim that may make a joke seem a little bit tasteless. Uh, And I did think this one sounded a little bit lower, but I could still hear it in the gym on my earbuds, so I didn't really think of it as much of a problem. Largely, it's because... With the new setup with the microphone arm and everything, I've been experimenting with the gain and the volume that I record stuff at just as a way of seeing what sounds better. And you know, you know the drill if you do this kind of thing. Um, and these settings we had just recorded a Fantasticast with, and Stephen told me this was, was like one of the best ones we'd ever done in terms of sound, not in terms of quality. I'm not perpressing to do any quality, but in terms of sound it was one of the best ones it'd ever done. So I left the settings alone. Well, it appears that when you record on your own, the volume isn't quite as good as it is when you're you're marrying it to somebody else's vocal. So I've bumped up the gain and the recording volume for this one. So let me know what it sounds like, and we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. As ever, this is always experimentation and seeing what works and what doesn't. You know, that's all it is. Uh, However, when it came to drop-in-spots promos for the other podcast, Kirk says that level was good for the main narrator, but again somewhat weak for each of the voices of the JLA in the same promo. Don't know what you can do to solve this, but I thought I'd point out the problem. Maybe it's just because I'm fighting road noise in my car, but it makes it hard to concentrate on your voice and the most interesting commentary. Your friend and co-host of Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Service Invader podcast, Kirk Greenfield. Well, there's not a lot I can do about the promo. Um, You know, I just drop the promos in. I don't fiddle-faff with them. They're not mine to fiddle-faff with, as a rule. I mean, if a promo is particularly loud... In comparison to me, I I do sometimes lower the audio or level 8 the whole thing. But as a rule, I don't touch other people's promos. Uh, But thank you anyway for the feedback. It's always appreciated. Uh, Speaking of the promo for that show, Chris Franklin has emailed in. Hello, Andy. Hello, Chris. I haven't seen one frame of the new Lethal Weapon TV series. I honestly dismissed it as a bad idea that was way past its expiration date. But considering how passionately you described it, I'm going to have to give it a try. I enjoyed the films, but didn't take to them like some folks. Maybe that will actually help me accept the new cast even easier. Great show, as always, and thanks for the JLU cast plug and the kind words on Superman Movie Minute. Well, you're very welcome. Superman Movie Minute is awesome. Uh, Chris does that with Rob Kelly, and if you're not listening to it, you should be, because, like I say, it's really good. And uh, JLUcast, which is Chris and his lovely wife Cindy, going through every episode of the Justice League, Justice League Unlimited cartoon, which is part of the Tim Verse, I believe it's called now, because we have to put Verse after everything. Um, and the first episode, which concerned itself with the three-part opener, or feature length opener oh, no, depending on where you watched it called secret origin uh over here that got released as a as a, a a movie even though it was only like 61 minutes long which i don't think is actually long enough to qualify as a movie i think doesn't a movie have to be 67 minutes to qualify as a movie or is it does it have to be 67 minutes to qualify for theatrical exhibition i don't know the 67 minutes is stuck in my head for some reason Anyway, both of those are on the Fire and Water podcast, and they're both well worth listening to. JLUcast, I've been looking forward to since Chris announced it on his previous show, Supermate, which he also does with his, his wife, Cindy. And uh, it did not disappoint. It was a, a fantastic opening episode, and I'm looking forward to them continuing on that journey and covering all, oh, however many episodes of that series there are. They're either about 50 or 60 or something. Anyway, that's it. Thank you very much for listening to this particular episode, which was a Captain Scarlet extravaganza. As ever, The Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation, and also, as ever, if you want to keep the lights on when you're buying from Amazon, just drop by the Two True Freaks homepage. First of all, click on the link, and we get kickbacks when you buy your pawn. If you buy your porn from Amazon. I don't know where you buy porn from anymore. Anyway, that's... Oh, somebody's messaging me. Perfectly timed. That'll do. Uh, We will see you real soon with the next episode, which I've already written, so I can actually tease it next time. I'll be looking at two episodes from the 1970s Nicholas Hammond starring Spider-Man television show. There's something to wet your whistle. Okay, see you next time. And remember... Everything's going to be all right. Goodbye.